Hey everybody, this is Corey. I just want to let you know, Hannah, who hosts this show, has a book called Millenniagram coming out on May 7th, and it's so good that I have laughed my ass off through every chapter of it. If you like her voice on the show or you like her voice on Twitter, it sounds just like that. Like every time I'm reading it, I hear Hannah's voice and I laugh out loud like a idiot in public. But all that to say, you should go pre-order it right now from wherever you get your books at. It's available everywhere on May 7th, and I would love to see her on the New York Times bestseller list. I know you would too. Uh, so go do it. Here's the show. Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Millenniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. So you're going to hear from a few guests as we kind of intro this topic. Um, I'm really excited that these people really span the different experiences of queerness. You'll hear first from Suze Nephis. You'll hear from Austin Hartke, who wrote an incredible book about the trans experience within Christianity. And I can't wait for you to hear their experiences of kind of, okay, what does pursuing pleasure, pursuing healthy sex, positive attitudes, what does that look like for us? And we have to understand that like different people are going to land different places and that's okay in terms of what is morally all right, what, um, what fits for them. Like this is, there is literally no one size fits all understanding to sexuality and to sexual experiences. So um, I can't wait for you to hear from them and then we'll get a little bit into, all right, what does listening to your body mean? Listen up. Hey, I'm Jeremy Suzanne. I use they, them pronouns and I'm working on a PhD in philosophy. I think one of the ways that it's uniquely fucked up, at least my life, <laughs> I can't speak for everybody, um, I think it like delayed a lot of like processing for me because mm. like my like queerness and transness ended up like I would so the behavior that I like engaged in as a result of that, not even realizing that I was queer or trans. Um, was, like, very, like, compliant behavior. I wasn't, like, um, acting out in a lot of ways. So I was very, like, when I was, like, growing up, I was very disintegrated into nine, where I was, like, the peacemaker and just, like, don't, you know, ruffle ruffle any feathers, just kind of, like, be, like, make sure everybody's okay. So just, like, fit whatever the mold is that you, like, you know, are expected to be. And so that was being, like, very pure and not dating anybody. (laughs) And so I would get a lot of, like, praise from the circles that I was in for not being, like, crazy about boys. And I was like, yeah, I'm not. They're not interesting. You're like, yes, I am holier than all of you. Thank you. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I'm such a good Christian. (laughs) (laughs) So once you kind of started to realize, oh... I am maybe not straight. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that look like for you? Um, like, how did you start evolving your sexual ethic beyond purity culture, I guess? <sighs> hmm. I think it took me 
So when I started like moving away and actively deconstructing purity culture, it was about the same time that I was kind of moving away from the church. Yeah. Um, and so now I'm one of those ex-evangelical people. Um, <laughs> and so when I was in the process of doing that, this was like three or four years ago, I was thinking about how if all of my like values were coming from this like religious system, I was going to have to come up with some new like values and ethics um, in general, not just for like my sexual ethic. Um, mm. And so I right, like, right. picked out some key value words um, that I like wrote down and ended up being like really important to me and were kind of like guiding principles for me. Um, and I think those have all like evolved into my sexual ethic. Um, and so the words that I picked out, which as I was reading back over them earlier today, I was like, oh, these are such three things. <laughs> um, so the words I picked out were loyalty, listening, pragmatism, <laughs> <laughs> honesty, integrity, and courage. <laughs> wow, I love them. And so, yeah, I think a lot of those are about just sort of like commitment and communication. And um, I think like being brave is very often about being vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I think if I was going to sort of sum up my sexual ethic in, like, a very short phrase, it would be communicate till you come. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> bless it. Hallelujah. I feel, I feel transformed. That's um, right. What does it look like kind of um, finding and ex- finding and exploring, like, what your sexual ethic in partnership looks like? I think it, like, so much of it is just about, like, communication and kindness. At least Mm. that's how I try to approach it, is just sort of, like, really being willing to, like, talk about stuff. Um, I think one thing that I can sometimes struggle with is, like, because, you know, threes are in that uh, feelings triad. Right. But the the three is, like, the one that represses it. <laughs> yes, yes. And so it's one of those things where, um, like, my current partner, uh, she's a, a four. And so she's, like, helped me a lot in terms of, like, making space for my emotions and learning how to process them together. Um, So, yeah, it's just a lot of communicating and feelings. So gay. (laughs) Hi, my name is Austin Hartke. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I work in education for specifically faith communities, Christian faith communities that want to learn more about being LGBTQ plus affirming and inclusive. Uh, I wrote a book called Transforming, The Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians uh, that talks about how we understand passages in the Bible about uh, gender identity and gender expression. Yeah, I think um, it definitely kind of playing into that, those sort of worries that ones have, um, that definitely calls me back to being like 14 and realizing that I was bisexual and that really giving me a hard sense of like, you are bad and you are wrong. And so Mm. (laughs) kind of like the um, having that wrapped up together was a hard thing to figure out. Like, is this 
a am I feeling bad and wrong because my faith community tells me that to be bisexual is bad and wrong or like is it my sexuality itself that really is bad and wrong like there was so much to sort of tease out and try to figure out at that point seriously Um, yeah yeah. (laughs) and so um for a long time my sexual sexual ethic could probably best be described as like don't be bad (laughs) but the (laughs) but the 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 definition of bad of course was defined by a lot of the sort of sexual ethics of the faith community that I grew up in um right not necessarily what I thought or felt or understood to be bad more just like what will cause me to be shamed by my community Mm. um so in kind of coming to understand as an adult what a sexual ethic might look like for me um for a long time, it was sort of like a, a weird swing of the pendulum that went back too far the other way, where I, um, after coming out as bisexual as a teenager and getting all this messaging about like, well, if you're anything other than straight and cisgender, you're going to hell. Um, <laughs> like getting <laughs> growing up with that messaging, then my response to that messaging was like, well, if I'm going to hell anyways, who cares what I do? <laughs> Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it was just sort of like, well, if I'm already irredeemable, might as well just do what I want. Um, and so I kind of swung too far back the other way where I was just like, who cares? Like, I still had a sense of, like, I don't want to hurt other people. But um, I think it definitely opened me up to being more, um, a little more careless with other people and a little more self um uh, things that were more harmful to myself I think just mm. sort of like emotionally mm-hmm. and and mentally than I should have and so as an adult now <laughs> I've sort of had to find a way to get that pendulum to kind of come back to the middle um, rather than swinging too far one way or the other and one of the things that has been really helpful for me as somebody who um finds rules to be helpful even as I'm trying to break them a lot of the times (laughs) Um, is like understanding the differences in the way that we make rules so I uh, was so lucky I got to go to um, a really cool workshop um, done by uh, oh what's her name Um, trying to remember her last name Wendy uh, Vanderwall Gritter Oh, okay. Um, who she works with Generous Space, which is an organization in Canada that does LGBT inclusion work. Yes, yes, I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah. And so she did a workshop um, at a conference that I went to on sexual ethics. And she was like, here's the thing. We in faith communities like to have a sexual ethic that can be described as a bounded set. So like we have, you can think of it as like we've drawn a square and everything within the square is good and everything outside of the square is bad. Mm. And that's sort of how we separate things. But she said, what if we had a sexual ethic that was called something called a centered set, which means you essentially have like this one sort of pole or or center dot in the middle and things that are closer to the middle are better and things that are farther from the middle are not as good, but it's not a strict like inside-outside dichotomy. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and she was like, so what if we thought about our like sexual ethics like that and so we stopped making people be like you are outside of you are too far gone you are unsavable you are bad and rather said like each person is going to have their own center their own ethic and you move forward like towards it or backward away from it throughout your life but you're never Mm. too far gone to be able to come back um and that was really helpful and especially that she kind of said everybody can have their own sense of center um and and she really encouraged us to find what our own sense of center might be 
And so for me, um, I've kind of come to understand my central sexual ethic as being one of, um, I'm still struggling to find the best word to describe it, but something like fidelity um, or, or um, yeah, I guess fidelity maybe what might be a good one, but a sense of being committed to a relationship. Um, and that might, that doesn't necessarily mean like a relationship with only one person or only one person forever, but it's a sense of like, you will do what you say you are going to do in the relationships that you are in. And that, that mm. sense of like, um, real commitment to relationship with another person or other people. And so that's sort of the center oh. that I try to work towards. I like that. If y'all will let me go, just the little mad scientist for a second, it seems to me that so much of what the unhealthy side of our Enneagram number does is get us out of touch with our true self, which means that we are out of touch with our bodies because the two things cannot be divorced, right? Like we live in this visceral human meat sack and this is this is where we are and so much about um the way a lot of us were raised I (laughs) I feel like 95% of everybody that I know used to be a Christian or still is but like not that kind um so a lot of us were raised in a kind of purity culture and and there's a strain there's several strains of purity culture that kind of make their way into the secular world but Um, a lot of what our coping mechanisms do is get us out of touch, almost kind of make us unlearn the language of our bodies. But let's hear from Jamie Lee Finch and Rebecca Lujan Loveless. Both of them are eights, but both of them, I think this is one, honestly, I think this is one of the eight superpowers that they have to teach us, which is how to get back into contact with our bodies, how to learn to speak that language again. And honestly, guys, it takes a whole lot of fucking patience. Like, this is not a light switch you can flip. Some days, like, I'm doing so much better about listening to my body, like, realizing that I'm queer, realizing that I'm probably not a gender. And yet at the same time, I realize that I go day to day in my life just literally rationalizing not listening to myself. I over-caffeinate when my body's like, please fucking hydrate me. And I really think that even these tiny little day-to-day things go back to this hatred of the body, this hatred of the self that I am still trying to unlearn. So let's hear from a couple of eights on this. Let's talk about it together as the season goes on. Hey, everybody. I'm Rebecca Lujan Loveless. My pronouns are she, hers. And let's see a little bit about myself. I am a chef and owner of a small business called City Kitchen, Sacramento. I started it about three and a half years ago, and my vision is to see families and busy people carve out time in their day and sit down and eat a delicious and nutritious meal together. Um, So that's what I do for a living. Lovely. I have been married for almost 20 years, which is kind of like a goddamn miracle (laughs) and i have three incredible children gavin who is 16 india who is 13 and kingston who's nine 
I also have an incredible girlfriend, which we will get to eventually. Oh, oh my god, I would love to hear all about her. Yes. Um, but like specifically her, mm. maybe, you know? Mm-hmm. You can ask me questions all about her. I'll tell you everything I know. Oh my God. Okay. It was during those years, actually, that I started to question my own sexuality. And um, I realized that I was bisexual. And I came to terms with that pretty slowly. It was like a slow dawn for me. Um, Even the term bisexual felt really uncomfortable for me for a while. But I kind of kept it to myself. I didn't talk to Josh about it. I didn't talk to anyone about it. I just started to slowly try on that label and see how it felt privately. Um, And the more I thought about it and the more that I allowed myself to kind of feel how I wanted to feel about it, the more comfortable I became. So it was a couple, it was probably a year, a little over a year of me kind of coming to terms with that on my own. Um, And then finally I came out to Josh um, and that was difficult. He... Like most things in our relationship and in our marriage, he just is a slower adapter to change. <laughs> um, so, you know, I we came into marriage in a very particular kind of mindset and perspective and philosophy. I changed that. Um, and I became egalitarian. I became a feminist. And he w- was slow in, in that change. And then, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, and by the way, I'm also bisexual. And he was like, oh, Jesus Christ. I can't keep up with this bitch. <laughs> So he, you know, he wasn't as educated as I would have liked for him to be in the sense that he immediately made it about him and he um, was like, oh no, you're going to leave me for a woman. And I'm like, that's not what's happening here. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we had a couple long conversations about it with maybe a month or two or three in between each conversation, just kind of letting it sink in. Um, And I was very like... Assure, I assured him quite a bit that I wasn't interested in not being married to him anymore. It was just simply about le- continuing to learn about who I am. Evangelicalism kind of made me um, afraid to know myself. And so it was almost like after leaving evangelicalism, I was getting to know myself for the first time. I was mm. having my own, my first coming of age experiences where, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that are raised in somewhat healthy environments. They go through that in their teenage years and their young adult years in college, getting to know who they are, pushing their boundaries, finding out what works for them. I never had any of that. So it wasn't until my 30s that I was able to start doing that. Um, so he eventually, you know, he spent a lot of time thinking about it and processing it. And he eventually came back to me and just said, I am sorry, I made it about me. My fear got in the way of being there for you. Um, and I want to support you. I want, however that, whatever that looks like, I'm your best friend, I'm your husband, and I want to support you. So that um, was another kind of big milestone in um, my sexual ethic as far as, you know, I'm obviously as an evangelical, I thought that being gay or being bi was a sin. So mm-hmm. <laughs> just coming to terms with that and kind of like the, you know, I wasn't evangelical anymore at that point, but still the residue is still there. And so just kind of, working through all of that um and then you know josh and i started to have lots of conversations um probably over about a two-year period and he brought them to me most of the time in the sense of we got married at 21 years old we did not know ourselves um we did not really even because we didn't know ourselves there's no way to really know each other um and we entered into like this lifelong contract with um very little information about what that was going to look like for us And so he, you know, and I think this was really interesting because he started to think about it before I did. He was the one that said, 
you know, had you known you were bisexual, had you been free to be bisexual your whole life and explore what that means for you, at 21, you might have made a different decision. Um, and, you know, we made the choice that we made and we are in love and we want to be together and we always want to be together. Um, but he felt like he was, um, he just really wanted to communicate. If you want to be with a woman or if you want to be with women, that's, I understand that and I am able to have that conversation with you. And I was immediately like, like what, what are you talking about now? Excuse me. I made a, I made a commitment to you and you're my husband and you're my partner for life. And I just, I hadn't allowed myself to feel curious about that at all. And it wasn't until he was the one that kind of, he almost gave me permission to, to feel curious about it. Um, because then I realized, oh, it's not a threat to him. So then I'm, I feel freer to think about it. Mm. Another thing that I'm fascinated by in discovering like what our individual sexual ethics are is how that changes from being single to being partnered or going from being partnered to being single or from going from being monogamously partnered to non-monogamously partnered. Um, I think it's so fascinating and, and honestly, this is where I will kind of share my own experience like... Um, for me, there was definitely this sense of, um, as I was trying to rid myself of purity culture post-divorce, um, I, it was kind of like a sexual free-for-all, like whatever I felt like in the moment I went for. And yet in retrospect, it wasn't really what I felt like. It was whatever anyone who expressed sexual interest in me that I wasn't repulsed by, whatever it was they were interested in. And that goes a lot back to um, my foreness, my feeling triad, my um, reaction to dangerous situations being, instead of fight or flight, it's fawning. I go straight to trying to endear myself to the person that seems interesting but dangerous. And it's upsetting to me that sexual partners for so long um, that I was attracted to people that seemed interesting but dangerous in some way. Um, and so going from that kind of like unhealthy, dysfunctional free-for-all to um, ethical non-monogamy but an open one to now being in a non-monogamous but closed triad relationship, whoo boy the mind fuck, has been... Uh, I can't even, I, there are no words. It, it's been unbelievable. But I think kind of reframing for me what it means like, what it means to be partnered. So when I'm going out, I'm not looking. That was a weird thing that was hard for me to turn off. But um, finding that I was looking for non-monogamy all along, but I was also looking for closed partnership. And... Um, sort of the sexual ethic that that has created for me in partnership is wildly different than what I would even have described myself as a year ago. So I'm interested in the journey that some people go on. I hear from a lot of nines and a lot of ones, maybe with nine wings, hello Shafe, um, that exploring in the uh, context of committed long-term partnership is where they felt the safest. I find that really interesting. Um, that wasn't the way that was healthiest for me to explore, but it absolutely was for them. And so I think as we 
Um, and then I hear from people like Ethan, who's a seven, who says, you know, non-monogamy was a place for me to fill all my spaces in with people and not really focus on any one relationship or focus on myself, most importantly. So it's so interesting to kind of see where different people fall on that spectrum. And please fucking remember people like sexual ethic is fluid. Like you get to decide what is okay for you as long as it is consensual, as long as it is celebrating your autonomy and that of your partners or whoever it is that you're engaging with. You're in the clear, bitch. Yes, so I am Julie Rogers, uh, she, her, hers. And I am a writer, speaker, um, advocate for LGBT people in Christian communities, um, wife and cat mom living in Washington, D.C. And I was kind of like, this is worth, like, it's worth it to me to just be celibate if I can actually, like, make a difference in these communities and provide, like, a safe place for for queer people. Um, Right. And so it wasn't until I was at Wheaton College, I was on staff at Wheaton College that I finally got to a place of, like, I think this teaching is so damaging, and I think the this kind of community is so toxic for LGBTQ people that like I need to come out um, and just and say that you know and say that I I think unless like we we fully affirm and support queer people in all of our relationships and sexuality then um, then we're not a safe place and so. I did that though still with like what's always driven me has been how do I best care for and advocate for the most vulnerable and the people who who seem to be suffering the most. So like that decision wasn't motivated by like Mm. me and my own like sort of like blossoming sexuality or me getting more in touch with my own sexuality. It was exclusively about like vulnerable students. Oh, right. At Christian colleges. So all that to say, like, by the time I found myself out of that, um, I hadn't thought much about, like, dating or marriage. Like, I kind of didn't, I hadn't, I had not ever imagined myself marrying anybody just because I grew up a lesbian in a conservative Christian community. Um, yeah. And I wasn't even looking to date because I was like, I probably just need some time to, like, you know, be a human and unwind for a while. Um, and then, and then I met Amanda and I was just like so taken by her and she, um, she's so extraordinary that I was like, okay, well I wasn't really planning on dating, but like I want her and I want to be with her. And so my, um, so all of sort of my, my thinking on sexuality and relationships has been formed like in the context of already having found my person and really just going down this path because I found this person rather than like concluding that I wanted something like this and then going and looking for it, if that makes sense. It totally does. And it's also fascinating because I feel like I have, um, I have experienced or not, I haven't personally experienced it, but I've seen that transpire a lot with the nines um, because it seems like, it's not um, like it happened to my my sister married a nine and they both kind of came out in terms of falling in love with each other. Mm. Um, and that was that was sort of like their coming out moment and they didn't know anything else. And it's it's fascinating to think about that um, 
and how that probably was the healthiest way for them to navigate it because it was it was a safe place it was a safe partnership um and you know i i think when coming out of this this harmful purity culture that is very heterosexist that is very um you know, trying to make our bodies be a certain way, there can almost be kind of this pendulum swing where everybody's like, if you don't experience a free for all, then you don't know (laughs) what you really like or what you really want. And that's just, that's just not, that just doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, So I think that's really fascinating that that is how you sort of began exploring that. Yeah, no, that is, uh, it's really interesting to hear that about other nines too. Um, because I haven't, I haven't known many other nines who have gone through a similar process, like, but it makes so much sense because I think like I've always gravitated toward a sense of like safety and, and like, I'm only going to explore things in the context of like feeling a safe, trusting acceptance, like all these things. And so I think if I hadn't if I hadn't like met Amanda, I think I would have been single for a really long time <laughs> because I just wasn't, yeah. I wasn't going to go out there. I'm not like a put myself out there kind of person. And so <laughs> I don't, I'm not a Calvinist, but meeting her is one of those weird things where you're like, wow, it does feel like there's something in the universe that is working to like bring us bring some people together, you know, because I I feel that with her. Hi, I'm Jamie Lee Finch. Um, My pronouns are she, her. Um, I am the resident millenniagram sex witch, um, (laughs) as it were. Yep. And that's exactly it. Because I thought that because I was a person who was open about just everything, um, that that equaled vulnerability. Mm. And what I was coming to realize or what I have been coming to realize is that it's exactly what you're saying where it's like, no, when I'm doing that, I'm controlling the way that I tell the story. And I'm generally only ever telling those stories that I was passing off as vulnerability. I'm generally only telling them from a standpoint or from like the vantage point of success where it's like, look at what was hard and now here I am. Or look at what was confusing and now here's the meaning. And what I'm coming to see and realize is that I have a massive discomfort being seen in process. And because it looks, because that feeling that the language that comes up in my body is, um, I'm going to be perceived as if I don't know what I'm doing because I fucking don't because not everybody (laughs) does all the time. But that feels like two inches from death, (laughs) like being seen as someone who doesn't have it nailed down and totally in her control. And that doesn't work in relationships. It doesn't. I tried it. I tried to do that. I was controlling my relationship with my partner and in a way that I was almost like pathologizing his emotions. So where when he would have an emotion or have a, a vulnerable moment, it was like, and I didn't realize I was doing this until recently, I would, <clears throat> because of my, in, my desire to want to control, I would almost just kind of bring in this, this air or this, um, this energy of, in order for you to be okay, you need to be more like me, which is more controlled and less open. Yeah, okay. and it's, that sucks. <laughs> it's really, that's cruel. Especially, as I'm sure you know, to do that to a four is like violence. Like, <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> So, uh, big surprise, bitches, but we're broke. (laughs) I have been literally so grateful for all of the assistance that we've gotten through the Patreon, um, through this last first season, and coming up on this one. 
seriously, we could not put this out without you. Um, but also, Corey and I could really use your assistance. We're both working like 18 jobs and trying to get this off the ground. So if you can go to patreon.com slash millenniagram, you can instantly get access to exclusive content, exclusive hangouts with me um, at $1, $3, $5. We're not talking much here. I know that y'all don't have much. I don't have much, but we're all helping each other. So please go to patreon.com slash millenniagram and join us. Be a part of our team today. It would mean the world. Seriously, thank you so much to those of you who are already supporting. Can't wait to see what we can do with your help in season two. Thanks. Yeah, he's been the, he's been the best partner I could ever imagine, considering that he is slow to adapt to change and I am like a violent changer. <laughs> so the fact that he's stayed with me and supported me and maybe he's, you know, not given me all of the right things at the right time, he always comes around. And then when he comes around, he comes around strong. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it was during that time that we just were like, okay, well, maybe we should consider opening up our marriage. So then we started, like, listening to podcasts and reading books about that. And in the beginning, we were like, no, I don't think this is for us. Like, I don't know. We we're do just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just listen to this podcast, just, like, just for funsies. But, um... I don't know. I think eventually we, you know, we had a couple experiences where we like, you know, were with a woman and it was like, it was not, it wasn't what I thought it would be. But the reason why is because like all I know, like literally I've only ever had one boyfriend. I was 16 (laughs) when I met him and I'd never had a boyfriend before. I never really, we didn't really date because we were long distance for most of that time. And then by the time I moved to Florida, we were basically engaged. So it's like, I I never dated people. So all I know is being in love with someone and then marrying them. So like going out on a date with a woman with my husband was like, okay, that's fine, I guess. But it wasn't like... (laughs) I don't know. It wasn't as exciting as I thought it would be. I mean, it was exciting in the sense of like, oh my God, I can't believe we're doing this. But a little anticlimactic. Yeah. Just like, oh, well, and I guess uh, apparently (laughs) I've been told recently that that's very common when you're dating. Like it's not all like, you know, rainbows and, and like symbols crashing in the background. Like it just was like, oh, and I know now it's like, oh, it's because we just didn't have a good chemistry. Yeah. But I think I just, I'd never, never gone on a date and experienced that <laughs> So we did that a couple times. It was fun. We did it together. We, we very much said from the very beginning, um, as we explored that, that, you know, we wanted to do that together. Um, and, and we also said like, you know, it's, it's, it's very rare that we would find someone, um, my husband, by the way, is very, very, very straight, much to my dismay. I'd like for him to be a little gayer, but he's just not not very gay at all. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So. Sucks. So, yeah. So, I think we we said from the very beginning we wanted to we wanted to do that together. We wanted to explore that together. That meant a lot to us to, to do that together. So, um, yeah, that's where we... Um, I think it was in like going dating a couple women together was kind of like dipping our toe in the water and being like, how does this feel? And it felt it felt great between he and I. The chemistry with these other couple of women weren't wasn't that great. But the, but he and I were like high fiving each other like, wow, we're doing this and it's actually really cool. It's making our relationship stronger. We're bonding over it. Um, 
And I think that that's a misconception with a lot of ethical non-monogamy is that, um, you know, I think there's a there's a pretty big social misconception that, um, especially in long-term monogamous relationships, that if you open the marriage, if you open the relationship, that there's something missing in the relationship and that you're trying to fill a void, you're trying to, like... Um, go outside of the relationship to get something that you're not getting in the relationship. Mm. And that just wasn't the case for us. We were very much wanting to explore it together um, to see if it fit for us. Um, And there wasn't a void that we were trying to fill. There wasn't something like, oh, I, you know, maybe this is the, this is the last ditch effort to try to save our marriage kind of thing. Um, Yeah. So that's how, that's how it all shifted. It was a very slow progression um, over, I would say it was it was over ten year period of time for me, mm. um, but um, opening up our marriage to be um, non monogamous was a really big step for us, but was one that we were um, we both were in sync about it every step of the way. I have tried as I'm doing these interviews to ask people for those who have chosen to be in monogamous relationships Mm -hmm. how did you choose monogamy because I want it to be something obviously you and Josh invested so much time and so much effort into arriving um and you didn't you didn't force yourselves which I think is really cool like there wasn't a you there wasn't a rush Mm -hmm. with either of you so you had the time to percolate you had the time to to think on it and grow into Mm -hmm. it especially for Josh Mm -hmm. for whom all of this was like out of the blue um But yeah, I think it's just really, it's exciting to be able to highlight stories of um, really chosen and really intentional Mm -hmm. non-monogamy that Mm -hmm. isn't the kind that, um, you know, a lot of people make fun of couples for unicorn hunting or whatever. And, you know, of course, I'm sure that that those relationships are out there, but but I think highlighting highlighting yours is an example of a time when you went on an adventure together yeah. instead of... Well, I want to say something about that unicorn hunting because that's a new term to me. All, every, <laughs> all, my entire life is basically one new, new term at this point. <sighs> um, but I just recently have heard about this and I, I immediately... I was telling you this the other day. I immediately felt embarrassed because in essence, that is what Josh and I were trying to do. We were trying to find someone that wanted to be with two people, um, a man and a woman who were already in a committed relationship. So that was essentially what Josh and I were trying to do. We wanted we we were we we were pretty clear that he and I wanted to see someone together, um, and that um, that is rare. Yeah. Um, and so then I you know I just I recently found out there's a term for that, and I understand the term because I'm sure that that is the case. I actually have a friend who's talked about that she gets hit up hit on a lot at bars by like married couples or you know monogamous couples that are looking to have fun with a woman and I'm like that's not what that's not what Josh and I were trying to do but it very much appears that that is Mm, the case yeah so it was a little embarrassing for me to find out that there is a term for it because I'm like I the so here's an interesting thing too is that we had you know we had gone on a couple dates with women um and Josh again was the one to say to me first I you know this that's fun and all but I would actually rather I think what I'm learning now that we're dating for the first time in our lives, I'm learning that I actually 
connect. I actually have more fun when I'm actually connecting with someone. Mm. That it's not just kind of like a frivolous kind of surface, you know, um, experience, but that there's time to actually connect with someone. Right. And that really hit the nail on the head for me because I was like, yeah, we both don't have experience dating. We don't know what that's like. Um, And so kind of these one-offs or two-offs are not very interesting to us. It's not something that we're really interested in. So, um, and I know obviously it takes time to get to know someone too. So you have to go through that initial weird phase. But um, the initial motivation for us wasn't to just find someone who wants to have sex with us. Like that was not a thing for us. We weren't interested in in that in, Mm. in the long term. We wanted to actually find someone to have a relationship with. There's such an emphasis put on both within purity culture and then outside of it put on sex and having it and having great sex and how can you feel the most pleasure at all times ever and I feel like it's important that we tell stories from the asexual spectrum as well which gets so lost in queer conversation. I have a few of those to share with you now from my guests. So my name is Ethan. Uh, I go by he or they. I like them both. Some of it's about reframing intimacy. You know, what is physical intimacy? If it's not sex, maybe it's a back rub, maybe it's a foot rub, maybe it's cuddling on the couch together, whatever it is. Um, Reframing intimacy and not focusing solely on penetrative sex, right? Right, right. That's, I I really love that idea of reframing intimacy because I think there's, (laughs) well, I mean, of course, you know, mm-hmm. as a sex educator, there's so much misunderstanding around, um, you know, what equals sex, right. what um, equals intimacy. And I think we all are kind of, we can be kind of imprisoned by these um, very narrow understandings of, you know, the vast breadth of, like, human physical body connection. Right. Um, I think... You know, we're all given scripts, Um, depending on your culture, depending on, you know, your sexual orientation, whatever it is, there's a script that, you know, you're supposed to follow (laughs) in terms of sexuality. And it's really a cage. Um, It is. And it's, it's not, it doesn't really, I don't think it works for anyone. Like this script doesn't work for anyone. Uh, Yeah. No matter how much you think it does, um, it probably isn't working for you as well as you think. Uh, right. It's just not. And I think um, I think even queer people are beginning to sort of fall into this in a way that I didn't necessarily see ten years ago. I think it's kind how of how do you mean in the in the sense that I think there's now a push to sort of follow the heterosexual script of getting married, having children, like being monogamous, being respectable. Um, Oh, totally. That kind of queer respectability. Or there's the opposite end. It's where it's like, you know, if you're not like kinky or if you are asexual or you're not, if you're monogamous, um, you may not fit into other communities, right? As opposed to being like, everything is a spectrum, right? And we're all sort of on it, trying to figure this out together. And there's no shame in being on any part of the spectrum. Um, But the scripts scripts don't work for sex. 
Um, my name is Hannah Schaefer and Evans. <laughs> um, uh, people call me Hannah Evans. They call me Hannah Schaefer. They use both last names. To be quite honest, I don't really care. I think that we both thought that we had to be a lot more sexually active than we are. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm fairly sure, I don't know this for sure, I guess, but I feel pretty confident that both of us are somewhere on the like gray ace asexual spectrum. Okay. Um, and when we first were like sexually active, I was like in my head, I, I had all these ideas of like how often you need to have sex in order for your relationship to be healthy because there's all those like things about, oh no, if you haven't had sex for like a month, you're like, your, your marriage is falling apart or whatever. Um, <laughs> And, and a lot of that comes from evangelical circles of, like, it your does. husband will, will cheat on you if you don't have sex with him. But, but it's something that I also heard a lot in, like, secular – in, like, my secular friendships of, like, you know, we have to be having – like, I, I want to be having sex, like, a lot. And I was like, oh, I don't identify with that. What's wrong with me? Um, and I – so there were a lot of times where I'd be like, just I – would, I would tell him that we needed to have sex just because I was stressed about the fact that – that you I hadn't? We hadn't. I thought that we hadn't <laughs> been having sex enough. Not because I genuinely, like, wanted to, but because I was like, we should. Um, which is a very Enneagram one thing to say. We should be having sex. <laughs> um, turn it into a rule. Good job, me. Um, <laughs> if we're not having sex, like, more than – if we're not having sex, like – enough I don't I don't I think my I think my mental rule I hadn't told him this but my mental rule was like once a week or something if we're not doing that then there's something's wrong wrong. yeah and uh like six months of that went by (laughs) and he was like you're stressing me out and you ruin it then when we actually want to have sex Mm. so can you please stop and I was like I hear you that makes sense <laughs> um and I I read uh I read oh shoot Esther Perel's book um Mating yes. in Captivity oh great my book. god so good great for whether whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous great book either way uh very sociological which I found really cool I wasn't expecting that mm. um and also just learned a lot about myself and what I identify with and but this idea of allowing sex to just like naturally unfold and like just like to let that happen and then to not feel like unless someone is frustrated because they want to be having sex but can't then there's no problem and I was like right and because I had been trying to like preemptively address a problem that didn't actually exist in our relationship yet Mm. I was like oh so you mean I can just deal with this when the issue actually comes up? <laughs> cool. I can do that. And so I was like, okay, so I guess we'll just have sex when we want to and not when we don't. And that's fine. And, and after that, like, neither of us have stressed about it at all ever since. And, like, we probably do have sex less than other people do. But at this point, I'm like, that's really okay. We're both very happy like we both clearly stated that we're we're happy with the state of our relationship you know we check in every like month or so I don't know because I do that I do this like check-ins <laughs> with him and I'm like I'm like how are things going how are you feeling is there anything just like keep it low stakes for him to bring up like questions or concerns because I think that it can be hard for him to like, bring it up 
at random. Oh, so sure. If it, it, so if it just like comes up, then he has the opportunity to be like, oh, that reminds me of this that I was thinking about. And I can be like, okay, cool. Another really important piece and a conversation that we need to have more widely, I'd love to hear from um, other listeners about this, is about um, navigating sexual ethic in the um, disability and chronic illness experience, um, which is vast, obviously. Um, I think what Ethan says here is so fucking fire. I can't wait for you to hear it. I've seen some valid criticism that the Enneagram is really designed for able-bodied people. Um, hmm. and I get that, right? Um, because I think, you know, I could talk all day about how chronic illness would affect the Enneagram. Uh, but I also think that, you know, people with disabilities were, were great at reframing things and we have to, the first step is just taking the tools, of the Enneagram and making them for us, right? Just like queer people have done, right? So yeah we yeah. have to sort of reframe these things and we have to be able to say hey man sevens are excitable and awesome but guess what if they have a chronic illness sometimes they're in bed all day and that doesn't make you a bad seven and it doesn't make you a bad person and it doesn't mean anything about you um it just means you have this thing right whatever it is um it could be mental health stuff it could be physical health stuff um whatever it is sometimes we're not okay and Mm. Coming to terms as a seven with being not okay has been a struggle because, yeah. you know, there's so many times when I was just like, oh, it'll be okay. Like, I don't need to call my doctor and tell them I'm feeling sick because, like you said, like, it's that narrative of being like, it's going to be okay someday, um, which it will be okay. It'll be fine. But it'll be fine <laughs> quicker if I tap. I try to, like... I literally, if you get help, I literally try to tap into my eight. Like I'm not an eight wing, but I will be like, just call them, just stay on hold, <laughs> just ask what you need. It's not a big deal. What are they gonna say? Like no, like they're not gonna say no. They're gonna give you the medication you need. It's gonna be fine, mm. <laughs> right? But then you have to communicate that to your partner. So first you have to come to the conclusion you're not okay, and then you have to be okay telling someone else you're not okay which can be difficult, um, especially uh, yeah. you know, if you feel like you're letting them down, if you're supposed to have date night, um, you know, sex becomes really difficult when you feel like getting out of bed is probably like the equivalent of running a marathon. So shifting gears a little bit from sex, I want to talk about embodiment because I feel like um, getting to a place where we are in consistent relationship and conversation and learning the language, becoming fluent in the language of our bodies is a crucial part of pleasure. It's a crucial part of sex. And being able to harness that ability is something that so many of us have lost for one reason or another. Let's talk about embodiment. I think a lot of people um, hear what I'm about to say and they're like, wow, Full of yourself much, They're arrogant <laughs> much, and that's fine. They can think that, but being in my body means I know exactly what I need when I need it, um, and I'm never wrong. And that has been a very, very difficult thing for me to come to terms with, specifically because of my evangelicalism um, telling me that I cannot trust myself mm. and that 
you know, my the heart is evil above all else, that even my my righteousness, the best things about me are filthy rags. Um, that has been absolutely um, ingrained in me. But when I look back on my life, I know that the times that I was in my body, the times that my body told me something wasn't right, she was 100% right. There's mm. never been a time that she's failed me, ever. It's me dismissing that. It's me ignoring that. It's me discounting that that has been wrong. Um, and so being in my body just means I know exactly what I need and when I need it. And that, and to trust that and for that to be 100% correct. Not sometimes correct. Always 100% correct. Fail-proof And I, maybe people that hear this will go, oh, she's an eight, she's black and white, she sees things very like all or nothing. Okay, fine. I think that's true for every single person alive. Your body is 100% always correct. Your body is literally, there literally cannot be a way for your body to betray you. She cannot lie. He will never lie. He will always know. She will always know. So being in your body means connecting to the truth that is always present and knowing what you need and when you need it. Um, you know, it's. I think that there's really incredible science out there too that supports this, the physiological responses that we get when the hair stands up on the back of your neck or when you feel like you're being watched. Mm. Your body you like even if you physically can't see someone watching you your body feels it and your body is giving you signals it's so wild isn't that wild like you like literally you like i (laughs) this is funny i have um all three of my kids always have pretty much unfettered access into our room at night and since they were really little they would come in the middle of the night you know to you know, to tell us they were scared or to say they need a drink of water or whatever. But all of my kids have done this, but especially my little one. They'll come in in the early hours of the morning and I will wake up to them staring at me. Oh my <laughs> and they're God. Like, they're like trying to be quiet and to not disturb me, but they need me. So like, well, if I just stand here quietly. <laughs> That's not creepy at all. <laughs> but how bizarre is it that my fucking body is unconscious? My eyes are closed. And she can feel what it's what it feels like to be looked at. And she my body wakes me up. They're just standing there. They're not doing anything. There was no noise. There was no nothing. It was my body going, someone is looking at me. Oh my god. It's literally our body knows everything. They know everything. And to tr- to trust that, to learn to trust that I think is such an incredible um it's an incredible journey, but it also changes everything when you learn to trust that your body is give, constantly giving you signals, constantly um, putting up, inform- putting out information that is important to us so mm. that we can that we can be healthy, that we can be safe, that we can thrive. She's always going to be on the side of us thriving. Um, that's literally she can't she can't not do that. I think that it's so interesting that you put it that way of, I, you know, for you saying you have a hard time meeting your physical needs unless your emotional needs are right. kind of set in place. And right. I'm like, wow, that illuminates a lot. <laughs> also, I know that like I'm the exact opposite. I can't get anywhere emotionally if my physical 
needs or like sense of like peace, comfort, embodiment, safety, all of that is not like set. So like I, I will not feel great in my feels if it has been a few days since I've been able to like go to the gym and move and make myself intensely sweat and move my body. And like I, and I've, I've, after a few years of developing that as a rhythm, I've come, I have come to find like, there really are days where I'll have to like stop myself and be like, wait, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not actually anxious or I'm not actually depressed or, you know, what I think is going on isn't actually what's going on. I just haven't been to the gym in three days. And I will go, yeah, because my physical, like I process everything through my physical body, every single thing. Mm. Um, so I've come to learn that that's just a thing that she needs and that's not, I don't need to make that like an enemy of any kind. Like I don't need to make that into, you know, something, I don't need to pathologize that basically. Um, and so I, I think that it is something that when I am working with people who are in the body triad, like eights, nines, and ones, um, that is something I will center when I'm working with them is like, I'm not here to like tell you, you need to start, like, I'm not going to use the word workout or exercise or give you like a, like a plan for how to do what, um, because this is supposed to be intuitive, but I am going to tell you that it is likely that your ability to process your emotions, ask for what you need, be present in relationship, show up to the work that you love every day. It is highly possible that you're going to notice that your ability to do that will increase when you develop a relationship to a like consistent movement of some kind. Mm. Um, Particularly for... I think for all three, eights, nines, and ones, we all have this anger that we all have a different relationship to. Like eights have like a really close relationship to it, um, sometimes a little too much. Um, ones are a little bit, um, it's there, but they kind of almost like refine it in a certain way. And nines are kind of afraid of it. And so <laughs> movement and and sweat, and I know I talked about this last time we talked, but like one of the best things for folks in the body triad to do is to like find something that takes a lot out of them physically because that's actually going to help them move strong emotions like anger and grief through their body in a way that it doesn't overflow and explode onto other people. Um, Okay. Yeah. And, and I think obviously like movement and getting in your body is important for everybody. Um, I would say that for folks in the, in like the heart triad of twos, threes, and fours, um, it is a little bit more of an afterthought. It really, like, Mm -hmm. it fascinates me the amount of times that when I am, like, connecting with my partner or talking to my partner about something, and I I will, I mean, I have to ask him so many times, like, have you eaten today? (laughs) And and his response is something like, no, because, and it's just like there's been a lot going on or it's been busy or whatever. And it's it's just fascinating to me because I'm like, I would not have been able to get any of what you just listed done had I not put food in my body. Like, (laughs) I I can't, I would not function. And so there's this, you know, but it's a helpful reminder occasionally, but as his, um, as his consciousness is being, you know, kind of directed more towards the, the state of his physical body and what he's doing, it is kind of observing that and watching that at a close range does illuminate for me a little bit in the work I'm doing with my clients when I'm working with someone in like a two, three or four to where it's, it really and I guess what you're saying too with like the the emotions kind of the emotional being the way into the physical, um, that is kind of, I think when I talk to folks in that triad, it does end up being this kind of, it's 
let me figure out how to say this. Like I will notice myself saying or taking a moment and pausing in our sessions and kind of just like bringing the bot, bringing their body back into the room in a moment of strong emotion. Mm. Um, whereas for maybe something like someone else somewhere on the, in the little Enneagram circle, um, that was, that's going to be helpful for anyone, but it feels like the exact first right thing to do for a two or three and a four. Um, just like feel the emotion and then like, where is it in your body? Locate it in your physical body right now. Like you're feeling yeah. this thing, you're crying, you're touching this emotion that's going on. Tell me where it is in your body to begin to connect, like feeling to physicality, because that's actually going to kind of like help streamline the relationship that people in the the kind of feelings triad it's going to streamline that relationship and that relational connection to like oh I have a body and I'm present in it and when yeah. I'm feeling something that feeling lives here too it doesn't just live in my heart or in my brain or in like you know this kind of esoteric artistic realm like it literally it is here and she is here and he is here they are here my physical body is here and they are alongside me feeling this feeling too so that kind of going in that way of like literally just bringing back and it's something I say a lot in my client sessions about like, well, let's let's be conscious again or let's bring back again. Like, let's be aware of the third person in the room with us right now, which is your physical body. Locate for me where this emotion is showing up in your physical body. Wow. Yeah. Which I think that for me, um, as I navigate that, like through guided meditations and um just I, I really have I as a heart type I have to be led through it because I don't mm. naturally know where to look yes. or even what um even what to be looking for what you're looking for mm-hmm. yeah but I think um I think being aware of that like I <laughs> I woke up yesterday and I was I could tell I was really raw emotionally and normally what I would have done in past years is just get really journaly and angsty mm. and just like just marinate in that feeling. And instead I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be really gentle on my body today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it's not nuanced to the point where I'm like, I know exactly what to do to feed yeah. my body because she's feeling this emotion. But just recognizing that the emotion was coming from my body and that she required gentleness because of yeah. that felt like wow. a huge step for me. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, that is huge. I hope it did feel like a huge step because it is it one. Did. That's a big it deal. Did. Mm-hmm. And then I realized at the end of the day, I was like, I'm not feeling this I'm feeling strong feelings, but they are not moored in any particular event mm. that has happened or circumstance. Mm-hmm. It literally just is, my, my, I'm feeling raw today and I yes. don't have to delve into it. I don't have to dissect it. I can yep. just let it move through my body and out. I don't have to attach to it or over identify with it. I also, again, oh, I know no. I keep using don't this use word. Those words I, with me. <laughs> I'll use maybe one that's better that I keep using, but you also don't have to pathologize it. Like you don't have to diagnose it and you don't have to be like, what's wrong with me for feeling the way I feel? Y'all sometimes just have feel. You're tapping. Okay, I'm going to get real like sex witchy about it, but like, yes, or just the witchy part. But it's like a lot of times y'all are tapping into something in the collective that the rest of us are not tapping into. Because mm. we're, we're not there with you. We don't live in our heart in that way. And when you're living in and from that heart space, you're going to be 
maybe a, a word that people might be more comfortable with is like y'all are super empathic and you're yeah. tapping into <clears throat> it doesn't even necessarily always have to be your pain it's not even always your <gasps> oh pain sometimes you're carrying someone else's and maybe you don't even know them maybe you're carrying the pain of the collective or carrying the joy of the collective sometimes like or one time I had a really weird experience where I realized like some of the pain I was carrying literally was the earth's and I was like, Whoa. oh, it's your, it was, dur- yeah, it was during a really specific time around election season, Dakota Access Pipeline, all that shit. Yeah, and I like, yeah, yeah. it was a few days where I was like, there, this massive grief. And when I finally left my house and went outside, I went into the backyard of the place where I was living and I just, I just was following my body and I just like knelt and I put my hands on the ground and I just started sobbing and I was like, it's you it's yours. That's, I've been, it's your pain. It's your grief. And I just like wept. And so we all have the ability to access that a bit, but you guys really have that. You really have. And so sometimes the reason why that pain doesn't need to be like diagnosed or the emotions don't need to be diagnosed or attached to is because it's not always yours. Sometimes you're carrying something for like other people or just the collective in general. I literally have chills over my entire body because <laughs> do you feel seen? <laughs> I well I do <laughs> not to be cliche but I totally do but I'm realizing I woke up with this rawness mm-hmm. and I didn't converse with anybody about it mm. um and then at the end of the day um like like just little discouragements came up and they caused me to weep and I was like what is this about mm-hmm. like I'm not even discouraged about this tiny thing mm-hmm. um and then at the end of the day um my partner did something really big and brave that mm. she did not tell me she was going to do wow and I'm wondering if I was holding space for that without knowing it mm-hmm. because it felt like oh that's what today has been about this whole time and I didn't even I didn't have the words for it it wasn't mm-hmm. communicated to me this but, is exactly why you whoa. see so many twos threes and fours who are not just artists but they're the type of type of types of artists that when they sing a song or write a poem or tell some kind of story, we feel like they're telling ours too. This Mm. is exactly why. Exactly why. One of the most remarkable songwriters that I've ever known who has recently become a friend of mine is, I mean, before she's became my friend, she's someone I'd listened to for many years. And I felt that way where I was like, you, and it wasn't even just for me. It wasn't even like, I feel a connection that you're telling my story. It was like, you're telling all of our stories here. And come to find out, she's a three with a two wing. Ah, And I was like, that's why. Because you have literally been carrying all of our stories for like decades. (laughs) That's why. Oh my God. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you even have thinking triad clients? Do they come to you? So many fives. Really? Yeah. And I love it. Oh my God. Yeah. It's hard, but they're real. I mean, they're they're brave like because so brave uh uh-huh yeah because a lot of them are you know for thinking triad folks because a lot of the language that I use when people find me whether it's through a podcast or social media like I'll use the word like words like disconnected or dissociated and for thinking triad people that's kind of a more comfortable state to be in and they often don't realize that maybe that might be indicative of like something deeper going on Learning that language is so crucial to healthy relationships. Understanding how to speak to your loved ones, whether it's romantic partnership, whether it's family, whether it's coworkers or friends, 
Um, learning how to speak to your loved ones in conflict is really, really important. Um, and you can't speak properly unless you understand appropriately in the sense that you have to know and be okay with your own feelings, with the signals your body is giving you and own them and be okay with it. Sometimes my body says to me, I'm not safe and I have to go, okay. And I have to tell my partners, I don't feel safe right now. And that feels bad because I'm like, I know my partners don't ever want me to feel unsafe. I know that, but I do feel that way right now. So I have to communicate it. And then we have to navigate what that means from here on out. Do I need to draw a new boundary for myself? Mm. Do I need to communicate to my partners, please stay away from that topic for a while while I figure out what's going on? There's so many things that come up. But I, if I make my feelings and my emotions the responsibility of anyone else but mine, then I'm doomed. Because guess what? No one's going to care for me and my parts the way that I can care for me and my parts. So... I think that stuff like that, like the communication of um, the communication in conflict, I think is something that it's a skill. It is um, it's an art. It's a it's an art and a science. It's something (laughs) that can truly be you can truly get good at it. You can get really good at it. Um, But it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of risk in the sense that we have to put our vulnerability on the line and we have to be willing to be rejected we have to be willing to be misunderstood we have to be willing to even be hurt i can give the i can give my most vulnerable self to you and you might not like it that might make you feel a certain way i have to be willing to endure what comes next after me putting my vulnerability and my honesty on the line mm. Okay, so I'm just going to rattle off really quickly where to find all of these incredible guests from the episode. Follow these people, talk to them, do not harass them or I will fucking come for you. Um, first of all, Suze Nephis, incredible scholar, hilarious tweet writer, Suze Angst, that's S-U-Z-A-N-G-S-T. Throwback to uh, old spelling bees that I'm still traumatized about. Uh, Find Suze. Um, we've got Austin Hartkey, who wrote the incredible book Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. Find his book. Find him on Twitter. Um, if you want to find Jamie Lee Finch, you know I talk about her shit all the fucking time. She's releasing an audiobook, and I'm losing my fucking mind about it. Julie Rogers is incredible. If you don't know about her work, get your life right. Julie is one of my favorite nines on the internet. You can find Rebecca Lujan Loveless, <laughs> my boo, at Rebecca Lujan Loveless, that's L-U-J-A-N, love less, um, on Twitter. Um, you can find Ethan, who is our incredible guest, season one, about sevens. Um, you should definitely go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet, at Crazy Quantum on Twitter, and you can find my Millenniagram substitute teacher, Hannah Schaefer Evans, who just defended her master's thesis. She's unbelievable at Hannah Schaefer on Twitter. Follow all these people. Do not harass them, bitches. I swear to fucking God. Um, and join the conversation with us.